I want to welcome all of our listeners from around the world to the Leap Forward, the Global Podcast. Our guest today is John King. John's a, a scholar, he sometimes describes himself as a rogue, rogue scholar, as opposed to a Rhodes scholar. But he's also an author, speaker, lecturer. He's uh, one of the key faculty members for our various uh, SIBF foreign leadership academies, and he's a good personal friend. We've known each other uh, well over a decade now, We've worked together uh, almost continuously, uh, share thoughts and ideas. And, and so today we're, we are excited to have you, John, because we wanna talk a little bit about uh, leadership and how that relates to impact through the idea of tribal leadership. Uh, before we dig into tribal leadership, though, I know uh, one of the things you often talk about uh, when we're together is the idea that leadership is a multi-generational conversation. It's one that uh, honors our parents and through them our grandparents, and it's something we pass on to our kids and through them to our grandkids. And I thought just to help give our listeners a sense of who John King is, maybe you could share a little bit about how that multi-generational conversation has, has played out in your life. Well, wow, thank you very much, Bill, and it's really a pleasure to be here with you and with everyone who's listening in. Uh, honor, it's really an honor. Uh, that, is a, that is a killer question for, uh, to start off with. Uh, when I was a little boy, my father was a geologist and he worked out on the Indian reservations, and so part of my life I was raised uh, in the Hopi uh, uh, Indian uh, little community or village called Oribe, which is the capital of the Hopi nation. And uh, as a result of that, uh, me, my sister, my brother, my family, uh, we became uh, kind of trained, if you will, in the Indian way of thinking and the tribal way of thinking. And one of the things that was distinct there that I notice is not distinct in the general culture is that if you are a member of the tribe, uh, you are accountable for your actions and uh, the way that you behave uh, going back seven generations. So your, your parents, your grandparents, and going back seven generations, and you are responsible to your children and your grandchildren going forward seven generations. So that means that each and every person uh, who is uh, in the tribe, and I believe that this is true across the, the board in uh, all indigenous cultures, uh, there is a seven generation back and a seven generation forward um, kind of a sense of responsibility and a sense of legacy that is being led. Now, it didn't mean that much to me. I never talked about it to anybody until uh, once upon a time I was in Uzbekistan with some people from the Sela uh, uh, groups, uh, and I was sitting and I was talking with these uh, people, and I mentioned to them that uh, that American Indians were responsible seven generations forward, seven generations back, and you could have seen the head snap back when I said that because it turned out that that is exactly the way in Central Asia that the people are raised. And so I tried it again uh, when I was with Mela. And when I was in Mela, uh, you know, we have 13, 14 uh, different countries that come and play with us. Uh, you know, we just got back from the Dead Sea. And 
everyone, everyone, everyone agrees that that's the tribal thing. So I call that the arc of leadership. And what I say to people is that I'm not talking to you. I'm not here for you. I'm here for the dreams and aspirations of your parents and grandparents. And I'm here for the promises that you're making of the legacy that you're leaving to your children and grandchildren. And I just have it be two generations back and two generations forward. It's an easy thing to grasp. And uh, what it does is it leaves us with the idea that from the birth of my oldest grandfather to the death of my youngest grandchild is about 150 years. And I want people to have a consciousness that they are responsible as leaders for over 150 years of the personal history of their family. And that leads to, uh, integrates into the history of their, com their community and their tribe. Interesting, John. And, and um, yeah, I think that's really a powerful way of thinking about leadership. And, and I like the words you used, accountability, responsibility, legacy. And I think those will come into play as we talk about the different stages of tribal leadership uh, shortly. Oh, yeah. uh, talk, talk a little bit about you know, um, the various tribes that have played a role in your life. So, I mean, um, obviously, uh, you, you know, you, you kind of live this experience for a long time before you wrote the book and developed the research and so on. As you look back on your life, how, do, how have tribes played out? Well, uh, thank you. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a big fan of Seth Godin. And Seth Godin wrote a book called Tribe, and it was actually published the same week that our book, Tribal Leadership, was published. And he talks about tribes in a way that I think is very, very accessible. He said, if you have a common interest, he said, if you're involved in something and you have a common interest in it, because of the internet, we can actually go and find those people around the world that we uh, share that interest with. Well, in my life, I grew up in New Mexico, uh, but my family is Texan, so I'm a part of the Texan tribe, and uh, they're pretty famous. <laughs> and uh, my dad was a geologist, and, and by the time I was nine years old, I was very clear that I did not want to be part of the geology tribe, but uh, I was being contributed to by it. But I got interested in sports, and so I wanted to be a member of the tribe of athletes out there in the world, and I was very interested in dancing. Uh, so I trained as a ballet dancer, and I trained as a ballroom dancer, and I competed uh, as a ballroom dancer, and I, and I was a member, and you might say a leader of the ballroom dance tribe, and eventually uh, the stage arts dance tribe, where I worked on Broadway with the Broadway tribe. And I lived in Hollywood, and I was a Hollywood dancer, so I was part of the Hollywood tribe. Now, I didn't think about it so much at the time, but I was very aware of what my group was and how we were distinct from other groups. Later on, I started uh, uh, engaging in volunteerism a lot, and I noticed that they were a particular tribe of people. And how you know people in tribes is they're organized around a common idea, and they think about common uh, uh, and, and develop a common language. And that language is organized from top to bottom. It's from the virtues to the vices. But I, came, I became interested in leadership. And uh, I was, uh, so I wanted to become a member of the leader's tribe. 
I was, uh, and it became very clear to me when I was teaching, I taught for, uh, or lectured, I, I wasn't a teacher, but I was an adjunct on staff at the University of Southern California for 13 years in several of the colleges. And there was a particular way that the people talked in the Marshall School of Business, that was the, the business tribe. Then there were the people who were interested in social service and the Price School of Public Policy, and they had their own language. And there were the people at the Annenberg School of Communication, and they had their own language. And as I uh, kind of wandered through my life with not uh, maybe not the greatest of direction or plans, uh, what I began to see was no matter where I went, there were people that were like me or had interests that I had, and they had a common language. And the second that I picked up their common language, I was accepted as a member of their tribe. And so that became the basis of uh, what I saw when I started working with organizations. Tribal leadership was <clears throat> originally designed uh, so that I could uh, uh, be effective working in uh, the corporate world and in organizations. And when I looked at it and listened to them and interviewed people and so on, I saw that uh, uh, the principles of management were good, but not great. And that what was missing were leadership distinctions. And they were missing that they were missing, and almost arrogantly so. And I saw that. Uh, that the key thing was actually there was a big problem about how to get people to become more efficient and turn out more for your whatever your company is and that's all well and good but there wasn't really a lot of responsibility about uh being in relationship with people and being in partnership with people and i looked back to my days as a ballroom dancer and i saw that if I did not know how to partner, if I was just kind of try and push her around, I was never going to get anywhere. And the only way we were going to get anywhere is as, as a true partnership, not a junior senior thing. In fact, I never heard the term junior partner, senior partner until I got into the business world. And I thought it was really bogus then, and I, I think it's really bogus now. It points to something like a slave master relationship and the and the tragedy of slave-master relationships is that the master is very comfortable, they've got it going, uh, and the slave is the one who totally understands it. And so who understands the master-slave relationship is the slave. And I saw that there was a lot of master-slave relationships that were inside of the business, uh, uh, the, whole, the whole world of business. and. And it seemed to me that that didn't work, it, it, that it was offensive, that it was resented, and that it didn't pull for people to be their best and do their best. And I saw that uh, the people who were in that stage, uh, they kind of thought and talked a particular way, and they were related to people in a particular way, but it probably wasn't the healthiest. And it certainly was not what uh, was envisioned by the so-called leadership of the company, but they did not know how to uh, break that open and get people working together effectively. And yet there are some people who do. And the ones that do, I noticed, were people 
who were very relatable, very, very much interested in the quality of their personal relationships with people. They were the same in their family as they were at work. And they uh, really cared about uh, other people's effectiveness. And at that point, I began to realize, oh, management's about effectiveness, but leadership, I mean, sorry, management is actually about efficiency. Nothing wrong with that. But leadership is really about effectiveness. And that takes us to a whole new level of participation, collaboration, and a higher quality of work. And so I became interested in that, started studying that. And in the studying of that, uh, I kind of made up a little model. In fact, not kind of, I made up a model. <laughs> and, uh, and the model was based on what, how people talked and how people connected with one another. Yeah. So uh, just in you know, reading the book, uh, uh, reviewing it uh, once again, I think I've read it several times already. I, I know you did. It was like a 10 years of study talking to, according to the book, 24,000 people across 24 organizations. And so obviously there was a lot of uh, empirical research behind this. And so I think that you kind of teed this up nicely in terms of your experience of the world and the different tribes you moved through and how you started to see the, the thread of the common interest and the relationships and the language. So now, now might be a good time to walk us through the, the framework. What are the different stages of tribal leadership or different? Okay, good. Yeah, tribes? just a slight correction. It, it, it was about nine and a half, almost 10 years. It was about 24,000 people. It was about 87 different organizations. Okay, 87. And, uh, and they were from NGOs to big corporations to small businesses to anywhere where there was a, a, a there showed up some kind of uh, command and control hierarchy. Uh, that's, what I, that's what I seemed to be around a whole lot, and that's what I saw. And what I saw was that there were five different, I'm going to say dialects, because everybody's talking English. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, it's kind of like there's, uh, you know, if you go to Switzerland, Bill, uh, uh, you know, there's people in a valley, and they're speaking a certain dialect of Switzerdeutsch. And then you go up and over the mountain and, the, and, the, and you go into the next valley and they speak Switzerdeutsch too. The dialect's slightly different, but they can actually understand the people on either side of them. But they can't understand the people that are two valleys away or three valleys away. And I noticed that that principle was exactly the same in the workplace and in organizations. So there's what I call stage one. Uh, I actually used to call them levels. And the reason that I don't call them levels is because of Jim Collins' great work of Good to Great, where he talked about level five leadership. And I thought, no, I don't want to cause confusion. So I called them stages. So there are stages of conversation. Stage one is one we don't really run into very much. It's about 3% of the total population. And they have a dialect that they talk. And the dialect, the context of that dialogue, it, dialect is life sucks. Uh, so everything that they say, if you netted it all out and distilled it all down, it would net out and distill down to life sucks. These are people who are uh, in a place where they, are, they have a sense of feeling alienated. Uh, most often we don't see them, uh, certainly not in the workplace, uh, because mostly they're institutionalized. Uh, they just have not figured out how to get along. They haven't figured out that we are social beings. 
and they have a kind of a feeling that it's me against the world. So that's the life sucks stage one. Stage two, what I noticed about stage two is that's you and me, Bill, on a bad day. Uh, so on a bad day, it's not life sucks, it's my life sucks. I can say yours works. And if I had your MBA or if I had your beautiful home or if I had your, you know, you name it, uh, then my life would work, but it doesn't. So my life sucks and yours is great. And in that space, uh, I generally assume the position of being the victim of the circumstance. I'm actually not very accountable. I just want you to get off my back so I can do my thing. And I have a feeling of being victimized. And I cater to that and I pander to that. Uh, now, I am also kind of joined at the hip to stage three. So stage two is you and me on a bad day. Stage three is you and me on a great day. And on a great day, the dialect is, I'm great. And then in the silence, and you're not. <laughs> and I have the stats to prove it. So that person does not actually know who they are until they find a stage two that they can victimize and create a kind of a, a senior junior relationship with. So they look around and they spend their time looking around for people to be better than and point it out so it makes them feel better. They chop people off at the knees so they can look taller. Uh, they are actually people who do perform. They do provide things. We give them the trophies. Uh, it's, uh, it's what we train people to do. And it's about the seniority or the superiority of the individual and the idea that I can do it myself. And the way that I establish myself is that I make you a kind of a, an appendage. Uh, my language would be something along the lines of my way or the highway. And, uh, and if you don't like it, you can leave or I'll get rid of you. So that's stage two and stage three. One is senior, one is junior, one is the winner, the other is the loser. Uh, you know, and it's very, very typical of individuals in our culture, but it's also very typical of tribes and very typical of even countries. The United States is a kind of a stage three country if you look at it. Uh, and uh, if you happen to be Canadian, you're very clear. You understand the United States better than the, than the than, uh, US citizens do. And you're sick and tired of being stage two, but your life sucks <laughs> compared uh -huh. well, so, to. Yeah. So, so uh, uh, yeah, I've got reluctant to use the uh, analogy in the context of America and its history, but uh, it kind of links back to that master-slave idea, and the slave is the one who really gets how it works, and that's sort of what you're saying in, in, in yeah. the relationship between stage three and stage two. Is that, is that fair? Yeah, that's very fair. Yeah, I, I, was, I was stunned when I saw that you could extrapolate it out to, the, the, you know, the, the big relationship is the relationship between the U.S. and Russia. You know, and both of us hold that we're stage three and the other is stage two. Yeah, interesting. And and a lot yeah. of, I think a lot of history, as I look at a lot of history and you look at these countries, uh, it, you know, they're trying to reclaim past glories and it's sort of, I, we used to be stage three and now we're stage two and we're trying to get back to stage exactly. three. Exactly. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. Okay, so yeah, how do you we can, get, you can yeah, how do we get beyond, sure. yeah, how do we get beyond stage three and what comes next? 
Well, let me tell you what comes next first, and then we'll talk about how okay. to how to move. Okay. Yeah, because yeah, that's a that is a trick. But what I noticed was that there were people around who were extraordinary and who were very collaborative and who were working together. And what I noticed was that uh, in spite of all of the rhetoric around how great stage three is, these people were very quietly doing about three to five times the production. So there is a group that I now was forced to say, oh, that's stage four. And I began to realize, oh, that's where real leadership starts. That's where somebody knows how to bring people together in such a way that they are uh, being honored, uh, that they have stable relationships, that their relationships are really true partnerships. In other words, it's an extremely egalitarian kind of position. But uh, in the appropriate moment, somebody is the leader and somebody's a follower. But in the group, there might be a time when you're the leader and I'm the follower. And then there might be a time when we're doing something that's in my wheelhouse and I'm the leader and you're the follower. We support each other. My example for that is a SEAL team. So on a SEAL team, you'll have people that are in the rank, uh, the equivalent of about a corporal, uh, to the uh, equivalent of about a colonel. And they'll all be on the same team. They're usually little teams of about five people. Mm -hmm. and they all have uh, their own wheelhouse. They have their own area of expertise. And when they're in the area of expertise of the colonel, the, the colonel is the leader. When they're in the expertise of the corporal, the corporal is the leader, and so on in between. So this is a truly collaborative stage four team where leadership is happening and it's emerging. So the idea of leadership is emergent. It emerges and it emerges seamlessly and it recedes and another person steps up. They don't make a big deal of it. They work together well. And I noticed that in the corporate environment, uh, there were a few, maybe 20% or more or, or less, actually, uh, that uh, they had that kind of consciousness and they had that kind of uh, human uh, personal intelligence. And right now, for example, we spend a lot of time in our trainings and our classes teaching people to be compassionate, to have empathy, to listen. All of those are stage four uh, qualities and virtues. Uh, because actually, if you're stage three, you don't care about that at all. Doesn't make any difference. Uh, you know, it's just do what I say or my way or the highway. So telling a person who's got stage three that they need to have empathy is probably not going to land. Uh, and telling a person at stage two that they need to ha have empathy, they're going, hey, I've got plenty of empathy. When's it my turn? You know, like that. So stage four is where empathy is actually in place. Collaboration is really in place and people are very stable in their relationships. And you'll see that partnership is the fundamental distinction. Relationship is what it's built on. And that the, uh, the virtues that are being played out at that level are respect, like mutual respect, and dignity, and the dignity of the others. So that's stage four. And then there's stage five. Stage five, you don't get to play at until you uh, actually stabilize at stage four. So the name of the game is to get to stage four and spend your energy uh, really, uh, you know, building the foundation and, uh, and building your stage four relationships all over your life. And at stage five, what happens is 
groups that are at stage four come together to do something that is historic, something that is going to uh, definitely move the needle, change the conversation. Uh, the example that I often go to is, if you'll recall, uh, about 12 years ago in Peru, there was a mining disaster. And there were 30 men who were trapped two kilometers beneath the surface of the earth. And they were, in any way you looked at it, they were doomed. They were going to die. They were in the dark. They had no food. They had no heat. They had nothing. But small groups of people, groups of fours and fives, who were at stage four, came together and they began to generate spontaneously doing what they did best in collaboration with the other teams in order to get these guys out from under the ground. So there were groups of people, little group of four or five people that they were taking care of the wives and the girlfriends and the families. And there were little groups of four or five people that were getting the message out to the world. And there were groups of four or five who were coming around and they were feeding the people who were helping. And there was a group from NASA, it was a group of five people from NASA that got there and they, and they invented a tool to get them out because they were in a collapsed uh, room in the dark and the room was about 10 by 10 and they were in trouble. So the first thing they had to get them was air. So they had to punch in there and get them air and then they had to get them out one at a time. Well, the tool failed. And this is something that happens in leadership, failure. And the tool failed, but what they did is they learned from it and they corrected on it and they built another tool and they got down there and they got these guys out one by one by one by one. And at the end of 33 days, all 30 men were out and alive and they were okay. Yeah. So I noticed this and I was completely blown away by it. That's a stage five project that it, it shows up as an event and then it disappears. But about three months later, there was a tsunami in Indonesia and 200,000 people were swept away by this tsunami. And the Red Cross showed up and a lot of people showed up from around the world, but the same folks showed up. <laughs> they showed up, started working and helping the people at the tsunami. And, you know, no, no fanfare about it or anything else like that, but they provided a lot for these people. And then sure enough, not too long later, they had a nuclear meltdown in Japan. And the same people were there. And I began to realize this is profound. This is, pr this is, this is amazing that the same people are at stage four and they show up and they participate in successfully dealing with stage five events. And then they go back home. And I began to think to myself, I wonder if it would be possible for uh, an organization to design themselves as a stage four organization and then create stepping up to do something of benefit to their community or to their society and do stage five projects, but they designed them rather than they were a, fun a function of some kind of a disaster. And I noticed that actually there are companies and organizations that do that. Yeah, that's fascinating. Uh, uh, so a couple of quick things. So, uh, I don't want to leave that point dangling. 
give us some examples of those kinds of organizations, not just small groups that kind of come together. Uh, what are those organizations? And, and then maybe we'll loop back and talk about some of them in more detail. Well, uh, the, the business uh, case that I see that is about that is a group that I had the privilege of working with a few years ago. Uh, it's a company called Zappos. Mm -hmm. And uh, Zappos is run by uh, uh, three guys, but the two of them uh, were roommates in college at Harvard. One of them is a fellow named Tony Shea, and he has a master's in computer science. And the other one is a fellow named Alfred Lynn, and he is Alfred uh, uh, is the CFO. And Alfred was a finance major, and Alfred made his way through Harvard by selling pizza to other people when they were studying and cramming for finals and stuff like that. But these guys got out and uh, Tony uh, wrote a, a, a program that he sold to somebody like Microsoft for hundreds of millions of dollars. By the time he was 26 years old, he was a multimillionaire, uh, didn't really need ever to work again in his life, but he heard uh, uh, a challenge. And this is what leaders do. They hear a challenge and they go, oh, really? And the challenge was, uh, it was said that you could not sell shoes uh, by mail or over the internet. And he went, oh, really? He said, I think we can take that on. And he and about eight other people, including Alfred, uh, in San Francisco, uh, living in one of those Victorian houses, took that on. And they started selling shoes over the internet and uh, they actually became a kind of a, a, a website uh, or a kind of a watering hole or a location where people would call in and they were interested in shoes and they would talk about shoes. And it turns out lots of people are interested in talking about shoes. So, so many so that after a relatively short period of time, about a year or so, Tony realized that they needed to be in a place where they, they were in a 24-7 type town. So they moved to Las Vegas, Nevada, and they set up a business that was 24-7. They started hiring people that liked to talk about shoes. Uh, they started uh, uh, put in phone banks, and they started talking to people. And as after a while, they became spectacularly uh, successful as a business but the main thing that was interesting about them is that they were building themselves as a culture of peers that were collaborating on this really neat thing using the, the, the internet in a way that was really a useful way to use it. Uh, Tony read our book. He got excited about it and he called us up. And by the time we got over there, uh, he had put everybody in the company through the book. Uh, if you came as a visitor to visit uh, Zappos, uh, you were given a copy of the book for coming to visit. Meanwhile, Harvard, Wharton, uh, Kellogg, all of the big, great business schools are going, what's going on with Zappos? And they did a number, a number of studies and papers and everything else like that. But what they were doing is they were building a stage for culture. So. They weren't chopped liver when I got to them, but they weren't completely there. And so we started to work with them. I worked with them for a couple of years and uh, they just kept improving, improving, improving what their practices. Uh, and uh, one of their practices was amazing. 
uh, you would get hired by the company and uh, they had their mail order system in Lexington, Kentucky. And so uh, if you were hired in Las Vegas, you worked in Las Vegas for six weeks, then you went to Lexington, Kentucky for two months. And what you did is you packed up shoes and you uh, uh, sent them across the street, by the way, to the largest uh, 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 UPL, UPS. UPS, UPS. So they would walk 24 seven, uh, shoes are being shipped out from there. So you learned how the company worked there. Then you went back to your business in, in uh, Las Vegas and you went in and you had an interview with Tony and he would put $2,000 on the table and he would offer you the $2,000 to quit. <laughs> yep, that's a great story. Yeah, so you know nobody took it, but it definitely turned them into loyal, uh, you know, people in Zappos, and uh, they developed a university, and they're ongoingly training and developing their people to be leaders, really to be leaders. And the people that they hire, Bill, uh, would never be able to be hired in a normal uh, corporate environment. I have never seen so many tattoos in my life. I mean, they are a rowdy, rambunctious group. But they are having a ball, and they are, uh, so I, I went to visit them. It was 10.30 in the morning. They had a scoreboard up on the wall. I was watching a group of people doing a, a, a kind of a conga line around the workplace, singing, dancing, music was on. People were goofing off, it looked like to me. And I looked up, and they, and they, they keep score from midnight. And it was 10.30 in the morning, and they'd already done $22 million worth of business that day. Wow. Amazing. Yeah. At that point, I went, okay, there's something about this that really, really, really works. So there's a number of companies that are out there that do this. Uh, uh, you, know, we, that was, you know, that was 15 years ago, or 10 years ago at least. And, uh, and now uh, the word is out. And so more and more companies are, actually we're headed this way. If you, if you look at the, uh, you know, what's going, where we're headed, we're headed towards a blockchain kind of world. Uh, and all of this is kind of based on the model of the internet. And tribal leadership is based on the model of the inter internet as well. All people uh, uh, are available to all information at all times. You don't use it all, but you use what you need to use. And you have the choice of selecting the company of people or the tribe of people that you participate with. And you can do it based on a couple of things. One is how do they talk? Life sucks. My life sucks. I'm great. You're not. We're great. Or at stage five, life is great. Uh, and also in terms of how they put themselves together structurally, whether they uh, have figured out whether they need to get along with people, whether they need to be the boss of people, or whether they need to be able, uh, whether they need to be collaborating with people. And the people who figure out collaboration and they figure out egalitarian collaboration are the people who are most likely going to be at stage four. Yep. So just to just to summarize again, because I I, um, I think you did not talk about the language of stage four and five until you just did that summary. But just to recap the language, then stage one, life sucks. 
stage two, my no. life sucks. Stage three, I'm great and you're not. And stage four, life, uh, I'm sorry, uh, we're great. And stage five is life is great. And so. Yeah, and the, the ante of the stage four is we're great, they're not. In they're other not. words, our group, our tribe is great. You know, where did you go to school, Bill? Uh, I was at Rice University as an undergraduate. Rice University. So uh, we're great, Baylor's not. Yeah. Yeah. That's um, how it shows up. Yeah. And, and so, uh, yeah, basically there's kind of this shift the way I'm hearing you is that there's a shift between I'm great. Uh, you're not as relates more to people. Whereas when you get to stage four, where we're great, it's not about, uh, the people in the group. It's about another tribe or maybe somebody outside your organization altogether. And that's the, the other, uh, in terms of we're yeah. great or not. Yeah, that's exactly right. What we're doing, what we're interested in doing is we're interested in building up our own group and uh, getting the people working together. And I'll tell you, I landed on it by accident. This was not an intellectual, uh, you know, kind of uh, thing for me at all. Uh, I was going into companies and people wanted their groups to work better together. Mm-hmm. And what they had was they generally had a stage three, stage two group where there was somebody, you know, who was saying, I'm a great team player, but they were a great team player only if, uh, you know, it was star and supporting cast. Right. They were not a great team player at all. They knew nothing about partnering. And from my background as a ballroom dancer, I looked out there and I saw, you know what? The truth is we are very weak as partners. Mm-hmm. I look at the divorce rate. We are very weak as partners, and the business divorce rate is much higher than the than the actual marital divorce rate. But we are weak as partners, and if and if you look at the logic of it, you can see that if we cannot build ourselves effectively together as partners, then we have no right to claim team, because team is a collection of partnerships. And so when I saw that, I saw, you know, we're living in a myth about team and we think we're great in terms of team and we're not great at team at all, but that's not the issue. The issue is partnership. Interesting. Yeah. Well, um, let's, now that we kind of understand the different stages and one of the reasons that uh, we felt that this would be a, a great conversation is that obviously the leap forward is all about having impact. And so uh, it's getting to stage four and then having those stage five experiences that create the big impacts around the world, large and small. Uh, and so uh, now that we've understand the stages, let's talk about how you get, uh, uh, you know, move up the stages, how you stay at stabilized at stage four, and what role does leadership play? Uh, can, you know, if you come into an organization and it's stuck at stage two and you're the new leader and you're trying to, uh, you know, uh, reach a level four or stage four and stabilize there, how do you do that? What does a leader do? Yeah, that's a, that is a, uh, that's a deep question, Bill, but, uh, but that is the one that we have to confront. Uh, the first thing is just to say that, that whatever you do in your life, you have power to the degree that you have distinctions. So if you have, you know, I was a dancer, I have a lot of distinctions in dance, so I had power in that world. 
but I don't have a lot of distinctions, let's say, in the world of mathematics. So anyone who, you know, is has done anything like, you know, advanced mathematics, they've got power over me in that area. So knowing that, uh, we want to have the distinction, the first distinction that we want to actually get present to, which people are not, is the distinction between management and leadership. Management is granted by authority. It lives in a world of uh, survival, and the reason it lives in a world of survival is because the senior distinction in the world of management is time, and time is a diminishing resource. We never have enough, and once we've used it, it's gone forever. So if, we're, uh, if we are tasked to produce something, and we are tasked to do it in time, uh, it always looks like we have enough time. Well, not always. Quite often it doesn't. But if we don't have enough time, what it brings is a form of fear and a form of survival. And in the world of management, management is granted by authority. If I walk into the room on a Monday morning and I say, hi, I'm your new manager, it's because somebody authorized me to do that, and it doesn't sound goofy at all. But leadership does not live in the domain of authority. Leadership lives in the domain of permission, and I mean by that I mean this. Leadership is granted by permission of those being led, always. doesn't matter who you are. Uh, if you are the leader now, and people withdraw their permission for you to lead them, you are no longer their leader. So that actually points powerfully to the relationship between the person who's leading and the people who are being led. And where the power actually lies is it lies in the permissions of the people who are being led. Now that's a tricky deal. Since, since it can be withdrawn at any time, and since, in fact, if I'm going to lead you, I'm not only going to lead you in the good times, but I'm going to lead you in the bad times. This is when people withdraw their permission. And I have to keep your permissions during the times that are the tough times. So, uh, so that's a tricky deal because I have to have, uh, you know, most people would say your trust, but definitely by my merit, I have to have uh, created a kind of a relationship with you that would allow you to give, grant me the permission to leave, even in an area where not only I don't know where you're going, but you may not know exactly where you're going either, but you've got to do it. This is the paradox of leadership. If you enjoyed this episode, and we hope you did, Please join us for our next episode where we'll have an opportunity to hear more from our guest today, John King. Thank you.